0: Hey there, I'm Heather Mulder, a former AmLaw 100 partner who just five years into my legal career found myself teetering on the edge of burnout. So that I didn't become yet another attorney burnout statistic, I decided it was time to redefine success from the inside out. Fast forward a few years and it worked. I had a thriving legal career balanced with a fulfilling life. What I learned is that you can achieve the success you want without sacrificing yourself in the process. And I'm on a mission to help you do exactly that. Join me each week for practical, unfiltered advice on how to successfully navigate the challenging legal market and succeed in both law and life. This is the Life in Law Podcast. Well, hello there. This is Heather Mulder, host of the Life in Law Podcast. And today we have a guest with us. Brian Glass is a personal injury lawyer in Fairfax, Virginia, and one is one of those very rare lawyers who is as comfortable building a business as he is in the courtroom. Over the past four years, he has quadrupled the revenue of the auto accident section at Ben Glass Law and has big plans for the future. Brian credits this growth to, among other things, building a values-based business, which we are going to get into today, and hiring the right people into their correct positions. Brian also runs Time Freedom for Lawyers, a podcast dedicated to teaching other lawyers and high-income professionals how to win back time by running more efficient businesses and crafting a vision of their own perfect life. Brian's perfect life includes coaching his three boys in soccer, baseball, and whatever other athletic endeavor they want to pursue, traveling the world with his wife of 13 years, and competing in endurance events. Brian, welcome to the podcast.
1: Heather, thank you for having me.
0: I'm really excited to have you because uh, when we first talked, we were talking a little bit about values and how I utilize values within my practice currently, and then also how I use them in my client development efforts when I was a lawyer and how I teach my clients to utilize them. And you had some really great points around, yes, but there are other ways to utilize them because not everybody's practice is a big law practice. And I was really intrigued by that. So I definitely want to get into that today. But before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Why, why did you even want to become a lawyer? Go all the way back to what made you What made you be a lawyer. <laughs>
1: sure. So I'm a personal injury lawyer in Fairfax, Virginia, which is about 25, 30 minutes outside of D.C. And Heather, I never, I never wanted to do anything else. Um, so I grew up. My dad was a lawyer. He was a medical malpractice. A lawyer, primarily bigger cases. And I've found myself a niche in the auto injury world. But growing up, like I just never saw myself doing anything else. And so as I was in college, that gave me permission really to major in soft skills like (laughs) philosophy and sociology, which was, which I would never let my kids do now. But because, (laughs) because I knew that my track was I'm going to go to law school, it really didn't matter. Now, in retrospect, somebody should have slapped me and told me, like, Get a hard science, do business or or science or math, um, because those things will serve you well if you get to the other side and, and you don't end up being like a trial lawyer. Like my job these days really is to tell stories to insurance adjusters or to judges or juries. Like I don't use any hard science or math, but if I did anything else, that really would have served me well. So, um, so I went to college. I went to law school. And when I got out, Heather, I was working at a general practice firm for about six months. And I hated it. I was billing by the hour. I got no training. I was thrown into, they had this base of clients who was on that like legal insurance programs. And so you sign up through your employer and you have a referral to a lawyer who will do your will for free. will do your non-contested divorce for free, or will represent you on misdemeanors for free. And the way that The way that this firm, in my view, really approached those clients was like, okay, how do we we upsell them into something that's not included in their contract? And it just didn't really align with what I wanted to do. And again, I wasn't getting any training at all. And so about six months in, an opportunity came up for me to go and work in an auto injury practice, and I took it. Um, And I loved it. And I was there for about 10 years before a couple of life events brought me. To now working with my dad, so I was competing across town with him for business. Although again, we were in kind of a smaller value, uh, smaller case value style practice. And then a a number of things happened all at once, and I'm happy to get into them if if you like. But I said if it's if I don't go and join his firm now, I'm never going to do it. And that was about four years ago, and you know we've been very happy ever since. Since I've come over, we've grown from about ten employees to almost twenty. We've tripled our top line revenue. And then just as as an aside uh, to that, he and I are also running as a second business an entity called Great Legal Marketing where we coach other solo and small firm lawyers about how to run practices that serve their lives and not the other way around.
0: Oh yeah, because most lawyers are the other way around, I would say. <laughs> we, Whether they're we, solo, small firm, big firm, it it doesn't really matter.
1: Well, and and you know the first time that you introduced that concept to many lawyers, it's like showing fire to cavemen, right? Mm -hmm. Like they never thought that it could be this way. And, you know, our practice isn't perfect and we're solving problems all day, every day, but they're problems that we enjoy solving. And so, you know, having spent deliberate time designing, what do we want our lives to look like? And then, all right, now that I know that, how do I tailor my practice around, around that rather than, How do I squeeze in the life that I want around the hours that I'm at work, right?
0: Yeah. And what I find, and I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about how you approached this and overcame it if you had this issue, is the vast majority of lawyers I talk to about that, when I give them that kind of, yeah, no, you can design your practice around your life, you can, you know, they automatically think, well, I won't make good money that way. I won't, you know, what if it's all the worst case scenarios come to mind. They don't think it's really possible. And so it really stymies them from even entertaining the idea and going after what it is they actually want out of their practice in life.
1: Well, and the thought experiment then is just, okay, what would I have to do in order to continue to make the good money right? What, what kind of a lawyer would I have to evolve into? What would mm-hmm. my marketing have to be like? What would my customer service have to look like? And I think the reality is that your your skill set in the law probably would not have to change dramatically, right? It's all of the things around client acquisition and client happiness that have to change in order to for you to be creating more value or more perceived value in your clients that allows you to make the kind of money while you're maybe working fewer hours or working remotely or or whatever it is that really makes you happy. You know, there is, there's somebody out there in the world that's doing it that way. And mm-hmm. so the idea that it's my business is different and I can't execute on that just is not true.
0: It's not. And I, I find a lot of it, at least for my clients when they come to me, What's really going on is they feel like, well, I'm not a business person. I'm not a salesperson. I'm not a marketing expert. Therefore, I can't really do it because I'm not, right? I'm not trained in those areas. And, you know, what I say to them is, well, you're smart. You got here. You can learn all those things. What do you you say? to them when they think that way. I saw you nodding like, oh yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's always, I'm not right. And so then it's, it's just what, okay, what would you have to change? What would you have to change in order to become that kind of a person? And looking at the things that you said, now that you want out of your life that you don't have currently in your life, are you willing to put in the effort and put in the time to learn that new set of skills to become and to walk into the life that you really want to have?
0: Because you're actually capable of all of that. (laughs) 100%.
1: 100%. I mean yeah, right? Like and we talked about this when when you were on my show, um I don't know when this will come up, but weeks or months ago about like you've made it so far, right? You <laughs> you've gotten through college, you've gotten through law school. You probably, you know, if especially if you're at a big firm, you were in the top 5, 10, 15% of your class. You can go and learn some of these other things. You might have to step back for a brief period of time, but you can accelerate faster by learning those new sets of skills.
0: Absolutely. So you did open the door when you were telling your story. I do want to go back and ask, you know, what you you said, okay, either join my dad now or never. Hmm. Look, like what was going on that made you
1: yeah.
0: have, you know, choose to do that?
1: Yeah. It's just weird confluence of events. And for me, things come in three, right? And so um, we... Lost an employee at the firm, and we we were debating do we replace her or not. We made the decision not to expand into the suite next to us, which had been empty for a while, and they they'd offered us a pretty good deal. But you know we were kind of planning like, well, what do we want this business to look like? and it it was really what do we want our two individual practices to look like? Because the reality was my partner and I were two guys who were running our own individual practices under one banner. We weren't really creating a business. And then the big thing for me was my wife, um, during the birth of our third child, ended up in the ICU. He was in the NICU for 10 days. And it really brought to the forefront for me, like life is short, can be short. My dad at the time was 60 uh, or banging on 60. And I thought, okay, if I if I don't do this now, if if Dave and I renew our lease here, then I'm committed for at least another five years. If we hire an employee, I'm committed for at least another year. And and then, you know, five years from now, like he's 65, I'm 40 and maybe we never get the opportunity to practice together. And so let's go and All do right. that. You know, we, we had said we were in the same town and what kept us from, from doing it was we didn't want to ruin the father son relationship by like having a business that turned south and and what if we get in here and we don't like it for like, how do we unwind that? Right. It's very hard to leave your father's practice. Um, If you've joined there after 10 years of, of your own practice. And so those are the three things that came together for me. And I just said, you know, okay, if I don't do it now, I might never do it. And to that, my, my third was born in July of 2018. I took a big medical malpractice case to trial January of 2019. And I, and I, I think probably like three or four months before that, I told my partner, Okay, I'm gonna leave. I'd like to to live out my time here, try that case, and then move over. So we gave plenty of runway. I gave him a soft landing. Brought somebody else in to to carry my book of business. Tried the case. Got got a 3.4 million dollar verdict, which is like a nice, <laughs> good way to exit. Yeah. Um. And and then had a whole lot of runway to come over here and really start recreating the practice in this firm.
0: You did something that a lot of people don't do well, I think, when they make a big change, which was you didn't just immediately jump in. You had the big runway. You kind of planned around it. You knew what you were doing. You had a timeline, but you didn't like feel like, oh, I have to do it immediately, which is something I find a lot of lawyers don't feel like they can do. It's like they decide and, oh, I got to do it now. And I think that often – can really hurt them and set them back because they don't step back and plan appropriately. They don't, they, they do one of two things. They think I have to plan forever. And so then they never do it, or they get to this point where I'm going to do it and it must be now or never. And they, mm-hmm. they go in without thinking through it. So I would I, like ha- to highlight that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's actually out of character for me. Um, <laughs> my I, I'm fairly impulsive about, Trying and starting new things, and so mm-hmm. my wife jokes with me about anytime we get a new piece of fit- fitness equipment, or like I just bought a continuous glucose monitor because I read a book. Um, <laughs> and she's like, you... Okay, so this is the new fab thing that you're doing. I'm like, No, I just like to experiment and try different things. Um, but with that, you know, it, I was leaving one business and coming into another, and so I felt like I had to give a soft landing because I wanted to create win win and goodwill mm-hmm. all around for everybody. Now, I'm curious what, what you think about this. Cause I've been doing a lot of thinking about this lately is like, as you are leaving a practice, you, you want to create and generate that goodwill by giving plenty of lead time. But mm-hmm. you also, I think as an associate have to be prepared for the fact that all your computers and everything is going to be shut off by the time you get back to your desk. Yes. And so, so like, and it's, it's asymmetric risk as you're leaving, right? Cause you want to, you want to, give four, six, eight weeks of runway to somebody, but then you've got to have created in your own life, the space where if I'm fired before I get back to my desk and I can't contact any of my clients, like that's a tricky thing to navigate.
0: It is. And I would say, and, and I even, so when I left the practice completely left law to start this coaching business, I wanted to give them enough leeway because I was just stepping away and I had a whole book of business I needed to hand over to people and I wanted to make sure it was all done correctly. But I also, you don't know in that situation how long they're going to want you to stay around either because they know you're just leaving. Now, Mm -hmm. the good news for me was they were all very reasonable and they wanted to help make it work and they cared a lot about me and my clients and, you know, so they, they dealt with it very appropriately. But I also was not going to another law firm. And I do Mm -hmm. think that it would have been very different if I were going to a competitor and taking all the business with me, right? So it kind of depends on why you're leaving, where you're leaving, what you're doing. But I will say, and then I try to tell my clients this when they make a huge change like that. You want to plan appropriately. You want to, like, you can start taking steps before you ever announce. Like, there were things I was doing for two years I knew I was leaving. And I was taking coach training behind the scenes. And I was coaching people on the side just to get my skills up behind the scenes. And there were things I was doing. I was also saving a lot because I knew starting a business from scratch in a completely new area, needing to be online. I mean, there was a lot I needed to learn that I had no idea. Like, online marketing was not a thing. in the first off, most lawyers aren't good at it in general. And secondly, I didn't need to do any of that in a, in big law. So there was a lot for me to learn, Right. And selling was going to be different for me. Selling was a different way of selling. And so I needed like a lot of time and money for that to understand. I need to flail around a little bit. I need to like once I even get out. So I had to plan very carefully and I had a huge runway for that just for me. So there's different kinds of planning, right? But then I had to note, okay, here's my timeline for leaving. And this is what I counsel my clients too. If they're moving from a firm to another, they're leaving to start their own farm or practice. You have in your mind what you think the perfect timeline is for everybody, but that may not be what other people think. So you got to have contingency plans,
1: (laughs) right? It almost always ends up getting compressed, right? You're like, I'm going to give you 60 days of of notice. But then about 30 days into that, as, as you've kind of moved on in your mind to building the other business, Uh, and they've kind of seen that you're, you know, you've closed seven cases, right. And your caseload is diminishing. Then you kind of come back together. You go, okay, maybe like, maybe like another week, 10 days. Like, I think that's kind of what happened for
0: me. Yeah. Cause I thought, Oh, this could take months. And I think a month later I was out after I announced because they didn't really need me and I didn't need to be around and it was just done. And Mm -hmm. so you need to have that. Even if it's very amicable, you need to have that. Okay. It mean it's probably not that's Expect don't expect it to happen the way you've played it out in your mind because it's very unlikely to happen that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Be ready yeah. for whatever. Um, I also, and, and I would say this, you know, when you say, well, I'm not always a planner and I'm, you know, there is that fine line between overdoing it because then we tend to over plan and we procrastinate and we don't actually take the steps. And so at the end of the day, you do have to do something. But I think my two cents is, You had already announced it. You had already – like you had made the decision. You you announced it. And so you were doing the thing you were setting out to do. You just weren't jumping off a cliff into it, right? That's right. And so I think sometimes people think they have to. Now, some people, that's the only way they'll take action. And if that's you, that's fine because sometimes that's just the best way for you to do it. Just understand that it's not as planned. Things are going to come up that you couldn't, you didn't even anticipate, and you got to be ready for it.
1: That's you know, I, I talk to people and they say things like, uh, "I'd like to run a marathon one day." I'm like, "Great, we'll pick one nine months from now and <laughs> yes. sign up, and and tell everybody that you know that you're running that marathon. Like, you'll figure out a way to do it. Um, you will. You're right. It, it is just just deciding, and then it, I think announcing to the world and creating enough of a risk of not doing the thing and and the yep. social shame from that that you actually are incentivized to go out and train for it.
0: Absolutely. And and as you said, it goes for anything, business, personal, whatever your goals are. We hear all the time, oh, I want to. And it's always this one day thing. And then people never get to it. And those are the things we regret. And I know this because of my cancer journey. Like you get to what you think could be the end and you look back and The things you care about are not the things we obsess over on a daily basis. They are those, oh, I'd like to one day. I'll plan to do that one day once I've retired or once I've, well, you don't know if that day is ever going to come. You need to make that day happen. And I tell this to my clients all the time. Either you do it, you decide, you do it, you commit, you tell people, or you let go of that. Mm -hmm. Like, let go. Okay, (laughs) maybe I don't really want it that much because it's... It creates like this unnecessary stress and anxiety that you don't need if you're not willing to actually commit to doing it.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm in an accountability group. And one of the things that we would say to somebody who, you know, brings up the same thing three times in a quarter, like either do it or stop talking about it. <laughs>
0: Very good advice. Yeah. Okay. So you, you got out, you started your firm. How quickly did you guys take off? Like how did that transition go?
1: So, so we evol- I evolved the practice. So, the practice at the time was um, was a large case style practice with a couple of small cases built in. And so, like by way of example, if they did a million dollars in revenue, six or seven hundred thousand of that would have come from one or two case results, and everything else came from from the small cases. And I said, well, that's not. Like sustainable long term, especially in a high risk practice like medical malpractice, where these mm-hmm. cases really are a coin flip at trial in Virginia, very conservative venue. We have a two million dollar and some change medical malpractice cap, and it probably takes one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dollars in expenses to try these cases. So again, a- asymmetric risk, and we are out of that practice area now exactly for that reason. Um, and so I said, what can we do to make the cash flow a little bit less lumpy? And are there classes of smaller cases where we can add value to the case and to the client's life and we can run them efficiently that will kind of smooth out the revenues in this practice? Mm-hmm. So that was the thing that we focused on. And one of the first things that I did here is we just went back and I looked at all the cases that we had said in the last six or the nine months six or nine months before I got here. Your case is too small and we can't help you. And called those people and said. What happened with it? Did you hire another lawyer? Have you settled it yourself? And remarkably, 75% of the people had not hired somebody else and they hadn't settled it themselves. And there was a space for us to add value to it. I came from from a little bit more of a mass case practice mm-hmm. where we were, my partner was half Korean and we had this whole um, cache of Korean cases, which is interesting From a lawyer perspective, because I had clients who really, I almost never talked to one-on-one, like my staff did all of the communication. So that's just an interesting way to practice, but it it taught us how to efficiently run the cases because they all kind of look the same, right? Mm -hmm. Emergency room, 12 weeks chiropractic care, and then we're sending a demand package. And so- Again, that was like coming over here and showing fire to cavemen to use that expression again, because they had no idea that you could efficiently run these smaller cases. So we just said yes to a bunch of those people and brought them in. And then the other thing that I did that with a good degree of success in my old firm that I brought over here is every time we were resolving a case with a doctor in a small medical practice or a small chiropractor practice, um, Where they had an outstanding balance, I made a point of hand delivering the check to them. Right. Because what I discovered was the pain point for doctors in small medical practices was lawyers take too long to settle cases. When lawyers do settle cases, they always call me and ask me to reduce my bill and I never get paid in full. And the lawyers always kind of mean about it. (laughs) Right. Like like the lawyers, the lawyers, uh, and there's some, it, it varies, but there's some practices that send, you know, send letters like you need to cut 50% of your bill because blah, 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 whatever. And, um, and so I just made a practice of going and putting a name to the face with these doctors and it ended up generating referral relationships back from them. The perception in our community is that what doctors really want is referrals from us. They want to have a reciprocal relationship. If I send you a patient, the next time you have a client who isn't seeing a doctor, you're going to send him back to me. I don't want those clients in my practice because my perception is if you, as somebody who's been in an auto accident, is calling a lawyer before you go and see a doctor, yeah. you're probably not all that hurt, right? Mm-hmm. And there's there's an inverse relationship in our world between how hurt you are and how involved and what a pain of a client you are, right? The, the people who are yep. catastrophically injured are very, very easy to work with because uh, they have bigger problems. And the people who weren't that hurt in the first place, they call you every third day because they have the neighbor who got $50,000 and, quote, wasn't even hurt, right? Um, and so I don't want those people anyway. But the perception is that if you can't shuttle clients back to doctors, then they won't send you patients, clients. But there's other problems that you can solve. You can make the case run faster. You can make sure they get paid on time. And you can be friendly about it. And so we just started doing that and we developed this whole network of people that were referring us cases and you know my my thesis on client development especially in a um, in a practice where 99.9% of the world was not in an auto accident and is not actively treating for an auto accident is that why am i doing mass market business to consumer mm-hmm. marketing trying to find the 0.1% of people that were what if I spent all of my time and effort and marketing dollars, marketing to the people that had audiences of those people? So chiropractors, physical therapists, um, um, auto body repair shops, places like that who are in front of the people that I want to talk to. And what if I can on a consistent basis, send them something that is not about me. It's not about how great I am, but it's something interesting enough to business operations um, or to customer service, that it's going to get opened month after month. So we have a small business newsletter that goes out to you know what we call our Dream One Hundred list. It's the hundred people, hundred businesses that have audiences that we want to talk to. And in almost none of those newsletters do we say anything about our auto practice. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's always you know some kind of SEO tip or some kind of customer service tip or or an inspirational book that we read that we want to share with them. And so there's an invitation often to like, if you send me an email and answer this question, then we'll send you the book. But the goal of that is just to get the thing opened every month so that I'm in front of the owner of the business who's in front of my herd every month. And then every once in a while, we're going to say something about a good auto accident result that we got Mm, for somebody. right? Right.
0: So I hear a couple of things from this. Number one, start with the easier point. You – well, and it may not be easier for some, but to me it's an easier point. You are very different than a lot of lawyers in that you you honed in very clearly on who are the people I need to be in front of to get me the practice I actually want. And you're in front of those people. And those are the people you focus on. Mm-hmm. And in what I see a lot of lawyers do is they just like throw everything out there for everyone to see. And they don't do – very good research or give much thought or analysis to who do I actually want as my clients? Who are my best clients? Why are they my best clients? What is it I like about them? Who do I need to get in front of? How do I get in front of them? Where do I go? Like all of those are very important questions from a marketing perspective. And they're incredibly beneficial because it helps to supercharge your results more quickly because you're in the right space mm-hmm. for the right people. And then you know how to speak to them and how to reach out to them. So that was point right. number one.
1: Right. And, and it's, and it's giving yourself permission to say no to the clients who are not yes. the right clients. For
0: you. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. That's so important. That's yeah. so important because most lawyers that I find who are incredibly unhappy, unfulfilled, not, you know, Oh, this isn't fun anymore. A large piece of the puzzle is they're working with the wrong people, either mm-hmm. in the wrong firm, with the wrong colleagues, but often also the wrong industry or clients. And they haven't stepped back to really analyze, okay, who are my people and why are they my people? And that gets us into the second point, which is values. You have said to me before, well, I don't, I'm don't. i not really a core values guy, but I will tell you. <laughs> What you just described <laughs> yeah. is very core values related, even if you didn't know it at the
1: time. Yeah. yeah. At least it
0: sounds that way.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that resonates with me. Um, I'm not a core values guy in that I could not rattle off to you the five core values of my law firm because my my brain doesn't think that way. And in fact, Heather, I wrote them down so that if we got into this discussion, <laughs> I had all five of them for you. Um, so we've we've been going through this process with uh, EOS, which is Entrepreneur Operating System, and Traction, which is a way to restructure your business around core values and around a core focus and a target that's set five years out into the future for us. And then designing what are the things that need to happen in the next three years, one year, and 90 days in order to get us there. And the beginning of that was like identifying the core values. and And just as somebody who is much more comfortable with figuring out how many phone calls do we need to generate in order to generate one client and how much is the fee that that one client average client is going to generate like i'm so much more comfortable in that discussion than i am mm-hmm. about what are the core values of this business but um but we sat down and we we did exactly this like uh, identify somebody that you respect what is it that you respect about them? And we just go around the room and then, then now we have the traits, right? Now we have actually the values. We haven't called them that yet, but those are the values. And then you narrow from there. And then the way that we use that in our business is is in hiring, firing, and training our people, but also with our vendors and also with our clients. So I'll, I'll list our five values, are uh, confidence alongside humility and modesty, continued self-improvement, Positive and optimistic outlook, proactive and above and beyond. And so, as we're evaluating number one employees um, who may be like on the spectrum of they don't belong here or this isn't the best fit for them, one of the things that we do is we run them through that values checklist and we say, Uh Are they a plus or are they a minus there? And the interesting thing that happened is that we were identifying, as we iterated on what our core values are, we were identifying problems with people. Uh-huh. But saying they've they're five pluses on all of our values, like so so either there's a value that we haven't identified that's a core value to us, or or we should shut up and not talk about that person again, right? Like either there's something that needs to go on this list that we need to evaluate everybody on, or you need to get past it. Um, and so so that's given me the framework to think about values in a way that somebody. You know, it's just that kind of stuff that makes my head hurt usually. Like, what, what are your core values? I don't know. It's just this is who I am. I've
0: <laughs> well, so I would say there's two levels of values, right, when you're in a business. There's your own personal ones that often we don't – most of us don't give a lot of thought to. They're just kind of there. And there are kind of guiding principles that guide us – into what we think is right and wrong, what we think is ethical and not, regardless of whether it goes awry of any rules or laws or whatever. There's things that just feel good and don't feel good. There, your values are involved in that. And I do think it's important to at least kind of acknowledge them and understand them, even if you don't specifically put words to them. Like know that they're guiding you and understand how they're guiding you. Because if you do that, you can step back and make better decisions for yourself, for your business. And then there's the, the values of your actual business that you as a business and your business partners put together. And those are incredibly important because creating those, they do come somewhat from your own personal values when you're putting them together. And that's what helps motivate you to show up every day and care about the business and keep the business going and do the work that's involved. And then it's also how you then find the right people to employ and the right fits and because that's going to be more of a values based hire, which means they're going to fit better. They're going to feel more motivated. They're going to be more engaged. So it's a win win, I think, in all aspects.
1: Yeah, uh, And and the trick is not just, you know, sitting in a conference room for a morning and identifying seven traits and putting them on the wall and right. having that, having that be the end of it. The trick is constantly evaluating your people and your vendors and your clients from the perspective of is, is what we're doing actually attracting people that fit our core values. So like if, if I've got marketing that's attracting clients who are not positive and optimistic, that's going to drive me nuts. Right. Right. Especially in an injury practice, right? There's yes, bad things have, have happened to my clients and, and their life has taken a turn for that reason. But if I can attract the ones who who are happy, not happy, but, um, but who, who are working to get better and happy for the opportunity to get better, then, then that's one thing. If I'm just attracting somebody who's calling every, again, every third day to complain, um, about everybody, then I'm going to be the next person that they complain about. So like, one of my rules is if somebody calls and complains about police officer, hospital technician, uh, insurance adjuster, and their primary care doctor, well, like, I'm going to be the next one on their list of complaints. So they're not a good fit for me as a client. Right. Um, but, but yeah, being able to constantly use these values to, to guide where your company is going and who you're working with is the important part rather than just, you know, putting them up on your website or hanging them in the conference room and, and calling it a day.
0: Well, they're not actually your values if you're not aligned to them. Right. Mm-hmm. You have to then make the right decisions. To get the right people and do the things that, you know, say yes and no to people accordingly so that you're aligned to those values. And that's Mm -hmm. where I find, you know, when clients come to me, new clients come to me and they're really, they feel stuck. They don't know what to do. They're miserable. They think it's going to be overly complicated to figure out like the answers that they need and to find them and to figure out what are my steps. But it really isn't. It's that they're so disconnected from the values that they hold dear that really led them in the first place, often to become a lawyer, to join the firm they've, they joined, they've gone off that path because that's easy to do when everybody else is doing something a particular way. And so then you think, Oh, well, I need to do it too. And then Mm -hmm. oh, I need to say yes to this client, because we are a service oriented firm and we serve our clients no matter what. Well, but maybe you're serving the wrong people though, because if the people treat you poorly or you cringe every time they, you know, Their phone number shows up on your phone. There's a problem there. And you shouldn't be afraid to fire clients to say no to people and not take in work if it's not the right fit, because it is going to make you miserable. And that's usually what's going on. They need to kind of get back to the basics of what are my values? What do they mean to me? What's important about them? Why are they important? And then, okay, so where's the gap between what I want based on my values and where I actually am and what are the steps I need to take. And this does become very clear,
1: <laughs> you yeah. know,
0: when you do that.
1: Yeah. it's just, it's one of those processes that, that they never teach you in law school and that lawyers never really talk about. And so yeah. it's not, it's not surprising that you get to the end of that. And, and what you're looking for really is another tactic or another website tip that you think is going to change your practice or change your life. And it it really is stepping back and figuring out structurally, what do I need to change to get back into alignment with my values?
0: Yeah. And I know that sounds woo to some lawyers, but it's actually a very practical thing. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about you and your practice is you kind of laid that out of how practical it can look in building a practice that supports you financially, but also from a personal fulfillment and happiness standpoint and really fits into the life you want
1: well. So this would be anathema to many lawyers, but, (laughs) um, but I leave the office at four o'clock every day to go coach my kids sports. So I have kids who are 10, eight and four. We're, we're playing baseball and soccer right now. And we have practices basically five nights a week, which is, which is an issue of our own creating, but, um, but I'm out of the office at four o'clock every day. And I'm really not then coming back and answering emails until 11 PM. Um, just thinking differently about, okay, what, what would I need to do in order to get myself to that space and being around lawyers and coaches who, who recognize that that's not, it's rare, but it's, it's possible. It is possible.
0: I had on, um, towards the end of season two, a guest around, you know, having a four-day work week and not working weekends at all, not working hardly at all on Fridays. Um, and, And one of the points that he made that I think is so crucial is it really is a mindset issue. We tend to look at it and tackle it from a productivity time management issue first, where mm-hmm. really at the end of the day, it's about how you think of it and how, because you can't structure anything unless you take on the right mindset. And I think, you know, that's really the key that's missing from most lawyers when it comes to, yeah, you know, all of the lawyers, and I'm sure you hear this too now, because you guys help with marketing and all of that. And there's always time, yeah. man- everybody says, I have a time management problem. I need you to help me manage my time better. of the time, I'm like, you have do not have a time management problem. (laughs) You have all these other – it all starts with the mindset, though. You have a boundaries problem. You have a prioritization problem. You have – but all of those problems, at the end of the day, have to do with the mindset that they have towards what the practice of law is, how they're supposed to approach it, what they're supposed to say yes and no to. And it's often very fear-based. Of what are others going to think if I'm not doing it the way everybody else is? What if it fails? What if I do something differently, you know, and it just doesn't work out or, you know, you laugh. But it's true, right?
1: I laugh because what comes to mind for me is, you know, the thing that's keeping most people, not even lawyers, but keeping most people from doing the thing that they really want to go and do is not their own fear of failing at it it's the fear of what everybody else is going to think if and when <laughs> i fail at it right yes like like if you were a lawyer and you said i wanted to work a 3 hour 3 day work week and you announced that to everybody and then your practice failed a year later okay like y- your fear really is not that the practice failed it's that everybody looked at there's the idiot that did the 3 day work week and of course it didn't work out right right um, but your point about prioritization, like I, that came to mind for me is it really is not time. It's not time management or task management is that you're focused on too many low value, low leverage things. Yes. And so one of the things that I started just keeping a list on my, on my whiteboard in my office is a, uh, as a heavy, medium, light list of every time I do something that feels heavy to me, where I feel resistance to going and doing it, I put it up, up in heavy and if I have something that I enjoy doing, it goes down in light. And so then my job is to, how can I take the things that are in light that produce the highest value leverage to me and and block more of those things on my calendar and the things that are heavy that I'm not doing and that they're delaying cases? Like how can I hire somebody or outsource to somebody else to do those things on a schedule? Yep. Um, and then all of that leads back to just having a happier practice. Like what if what if you spent, 40 of your 40 hours, 30 of your, whatever it is, doing things that made you the highest dollar per hour and felt light to you and you enjoyed doing? Like, what would your life look like? And and you might even want to spend more than 40 hours in your office if you were doing that. You um, you. know, you, but, but what if you just kept the list of the things that you hated doing, uh, that you weren't good at and the things that you liked doing that you are good at and focused only on doing the things in that like, and I'm good at quadrant. And and you could even have your your assistant or your paralegal or whoever, like like make it part of their job to, to keep your fal- calendar chock full of the things that you love doing and that you're really good at.
0: It's a new way of looking at things. And it helps to give you permission to let go of some of this stuff, to not worry about it so much to delegate more often. The number of lawyers that I've known who are just so afraid of letting go, they want control over everything. So why? Why do you need control over that when you don't even care that much about it? You don't like doing it. And yet you're trying to take over. So if you start to shift how you look at it in that way, it helps to give you that permission to let go and not worry about it so much and let others take over.
1: Yeah, and there's probably somebody who's better at that thing than you are anyway. (laughs) But I still struggle with taking the DIY course. Like, I don't know, what if I could learn how to build a website? It's a terrible use of my time, but it's kind of interesting. And, and I find myself still, uh, still looking at those things and then trying to micromanage the guy who I've hired to actually do the thing. (laughs) And so for me, for me, if I'm going to delegate it, I've got to be completely out of it. Tell me about the result after it happens. And that's, I think that's really hard for lawyers um, mm-hmm. especially the first time that you do it, right?
0: It is. And I think it's sometimes where you need you need somebody to help you do that, like a coach, an accountability partner, mentor, somebody you can go to that will help you let go. Mm-hmm. I've learned, I'm like you, I, when I started this business, I was all over the place. I'm building a website and learning certain marketing and sales and all that, you know, and I wanted to learn it all. It was all very interesting to me because it was new. But at the end of the day, a lot of it didn't really make sense for me to focus on or do. And I wasted a lot of time doing all of that stuff. And I mean, I look back and it's not a total waste because I learned a lot and I can now apply it better and I can help manage others better in those areas. But I have learned over the years that I need a coach or a mastermind group or something that I'm in at all times that helps keep me focused on The things that I do enjoy that are also high leverage, like high activities for my business, like they're actually going to bring in money and let go of that other stuff. And sometimes the letting go is that I don't even have to worry about it. Like it doesn't actually need to get done. And then some of it is, okay, who else can do it better or just as good or maybe not even as good as me, but it's good enough, right? It doesn't always even have to be as good as you. That's an excuse I hear a lot of lawyers making. Well, I do it better okay, let's assume you do. Maybe you do. Does it still make sense? If somebody else can do it good enough, it's, you know, does it make sense? No, often it doesn't.
1: <laughs> and what if you found two people that could do it 70% as well as you could? Yeah. So we find in, in our mastermind group, what we run on kind of a hot seat uh, style when we get together once a quarter. And so you're up in the front for 30 or 45 minutes describing a problem that you have in your law firm, and the thing that happens more often than not is so, somebody will be like, "Why, why are you still doing that?" Right, <laughs> or some, or somebody will have a vendor who could do it for you, or, or you know, sometimes people, like assistants get fired because because you come in and you, you're complaining now about that person for the third meeting in a row, and we're like, we're, we're tired. Either deal with it or stop complaining about it, right? Yes. And so, so lawyers and again, not not only lawyers, but like. Most business people don't have spaces or coaches to go and talk to this, talk to about these things in a safe space, right? Yeah. Um, Because it, like, if you're in, if, you, if you're going to your own local bar association meeting with everybody who you see in the courthouse, who's in the same practice area as you are, you don't want to be the one that's complaining all the time. And they're probably not going to help you solve your problems.
0: That's right. right.
1: So having a space with lawyers, or with coaches who are outside of your practice area and outside of your locality where, where you can bring these ideas and and cross pollinate and take ideas from other people, I think is really an, an unlock for many lawyers and law firm owners.
0: I do too. And it amazes me how little lawyers know about masterminds and Mm -hmm. how much they can help them. I think masterminds are amazing personally um, I think coaching is obviously amazing, but I really love masterminds. I, I would say that, it, which is why I run a mastermind as well, for attorneys who want to grow their business. Um, because, you know, there's something about high achievers in general don't like to admit when they're struggling. Because we all see the facade, right? The, what everybody wants us to see. And that everything you're seeing that looks successful from your point of view with respect mm-hmm. to all of your competitors is just their best foot forward. They're not showing you everything, but you think they are. And so you think you're the only one struggling and you're not. And so there's something about coming together and talking with people and realizing I'm not the only one and not feeling so stupid and out of touch. And first off, it massively reduces stress and anxiety just off the bat to hear that and to be in that space. And then secondly, and I love that you do this too, like if it's a different practice area and different locations and different, you know, because I try to fit people together that would be good personality fits, but aren't doing the same thing and are in different types of practices and definitively never in the same firm if they're a big firm or oh, yeah. mid-sized firm lawyer. Never, ever. <laughs> That's not a good idea. Um So don't ever, if you're looking at one, don't ever do that. You're not going to admit everything there, okay? You're not going to be as open. Neither are they. So it's not going to help you that much yeah, just being there and understanding I'm not alone. I It's okay to struggle and getting the ideas of other people because they everybody has their own strengths and experiences and different ideas. And I call it a fast forward button. It really helps to fast forward your results and your efforts. And it's not, yes, it holds you accountable, but it there's something about that two plus two really does equal five, six, seven, not just four. <laughs> yeah. When you're getting together, right?
1: And and you know, I'll tell a story. It, it doesn't even have to be lawyers. So I'm in two groups. I'm in I'm yep. in the lawyer group, and then I'm in a an all male entrepreneur group. You know, most of the guys tend to be between like 30 and 45, and most of them are uh, entrepreneurs in the real estate space. Um, and I was on a call talking about intake with. A guy who ran a roofing company. (laughs) And he says, you know, one of the things that we did a couple of years ago is we started hiring quality assurance people to we had this sales script, but we didn't have any idea whether our people were following the sales script. And so, you know, there's these 17 things that you're supposed to do every time that you go out and you look at a house. One of them, like fly a drone up there, take pictures from the inside, measure from the outside. And so we had our quality assurance people call up and And act as though you didn't have to do all 17 of those things. Like, oh, sometimes the roof calls for us to fly a drone and take pictures. Did the guy take pictures? Sometimes we have to go inside and measure. Did he Mm. do that? And so just as a way of going back and, and checking behind. And so I said like, wow, that's what if we could implement that in our firm and have a checklist for every position that had a checklist, just have a QA person follow up behind it. And so I've gotten more ideas really. From the folks who are not in the legal space, and yes. certainly from the folks that are not in the auto accident space, then I have because everybody kind of does it the same way because how how do most lawyers learn how to do things by looking around All and looking lawyers. at what everybody else is doing yeah. right?
0: no, and I would agree with that. It really, when I came out into this space and became an online you know business owner, an entrepreneur, The stuff I learned from a sales marketing and, you know, I was like, holy crap, lawyers need to be using these (laughs) principles more. We don't learn any of this, right? And I too have joined masterminds where it's not just coaches or it's not just lawyers or it's not just, and I've thought about opening up my group to some non-lawyers because I think it would be helpful to have people Mm -hmm. from outside this world they challenge you more. They help you think outside the box. It might help you really solve some of the problems you're having more quickly. Okay. So we're kind of towards the end of our time. How can people find you?
1: I'm most active on LinkedIn, just under Brian Glass. And the law firm is Ben Glass Law, my dad's name. Uh, And then the, the mastermind business that we run is called Great Legal Marketing. We have kind of an info product level um, where you get mailers and you get webinars and and zoom calls and things like that. And then we have two, two mastermind groups, one for, and we're really in the direct to consumer space. So if you have a wills and estates business, criminal law, personal injury tax, that's the space that we occupy. One of our levels really is for folks who are trying to crest the million dollar mark in revenue with their firm. And the other one is a million and above.
0: Okay. And you have a podcast too. Yes.
1: That's right. Thank you. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of stuff. Uh, I I run a podcast called Time Freedom for Lawyers, where I interview uh, people like Heather, occasionally lawyers, but mostly people from all walks of life who are living lives of their own design.
0: And I will put links to all of those places in the show notes so that people can find you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Do you ever feel like you're a bit isolated, unsupported even? And that you don't have enough people to talk to, to talk out your big business goals, to brainstorm creatively with, and to get the necessary support that you need to do the things you know you need to do that are uncomfortable because they're uncertain for your big business goals. If that sounds like you, then I think you might be interested in learning more about Elevate, my business mastermind for attorneys who are looking for deep connections within and support from a group of peers that will challenge you to move forward on your bigger goals, to stay accountable to the things you say you're going to do, and also that will help you have fun along the way. I invite you to check out Elevate. There will be a link to it in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Life & Law Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and aren't yet a follower or subscriber, be sure to hit the follow and or subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. For show notes and free resources to help you succeed in both Life & Law, including the Life & Law Roadmap, visit lifeandlawpodcast.com.